Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, I'm delighted that my guest today is Zoe Scammon from Bodelicious. But how do you say it? How do you Bodelicious? Bodacious. Bodacious, exactly. Bodacious. And, and Ridley Scott. Yes. Creative Arts, Creative Agency. Yes. Yes. Um, in London. So we're going to get a really interesting viewpoint of what's happening in London, which is in lockdown, like we are in New York. But before we go into the conversation, I want to say a big thank you to Alexander Ray from Orcs, who is my virtual sound engineer, um, making sure uh, we do the recording right and all the other things that I usually, because of my te technical ineptitude, uh, fail to do. Um, Okay, Zoe, so let's start off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to, where you got to, what the, your background is? I think it's been a, a series of uh, lovely accidents that's kind of got me where I am now. So never set out to work in advertising, kind of stumbled on it by accident by answering an ad in a, in a local paper. Um, ended up at a pay-per-click search agency. Uh, one of my first clients was a pornography website. So my job was to put keyword lists together for lots of different categories of porn um, and write the Google AdWords uh, ads for it, which was interesting. Reminds me of the plea bag episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, was, it was great fun. Um, and then I ended up from there moving up to sort of agencies in London and just trying a lot of stuff out. And then when I was 22, I moved to Sydney and that's kind of where I discovered strategy. So I was working at an agency called Mediacom uh, as a sort of group manager and I was far too young. I had no emotional maturity whatsoever and I was terrible at the job. Um, and I got pulled aside one day and basically said, you know, you're shit at this, you're getting really bad feedback. Um, and I thought, yep, that's probably fair. And they said, we think you're a strategist. And I said, as long as I can keep my visa, you can make me whatever you want me to be. So that's fine. So I started shadowing another strategist. Um, we only had one in the agency and I still didn't really understand what it was. And then kind of picked it up um, from there and sort of hopped around after Mediacom. I, start, I was at um, Australia's first social media agency, which kind of went a bit tits up after about nine months. Then I jumped to Naked and Naked was probably my proper grounding in strategy where I really learned what it was and how to do it. Um, and then, yeah, from there, I kind of hopped around to a few agencies, came back to London, um, started working a little bit more in management consultancy and tried to broaden my understanding of what strategy was above and beyond advertising and brands into more of a kind of business innovation, big decision-making area. Um, and that's kind of where I landed where I am today. Yeah, so what's, what's the kind of premise of what you do as a company right now? So right now I split my time 50-50. So 50% 50 of my time is Bodacious and Bodacious is a sort of broad strategy offering. And what I mean by that is sometimes I do do brand work and brand strategy, but a lot of the time I find myself looking at organizational design challenges. So why is work 
not necessarily traveling through the organization in the way it should be. So have we got the right talent in place? Have we got the right processes in place? How can we work differently? Um, a lot of the time it's just advising senior clients on how to make the next steps forward towards new product development um, to entering into a new category or just their day-to-day -day management of their own jobs and their own teams. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also working a lot on ventures. Um, so I've got uh, some clients in Switzerland and they've got uh, a big venture fund, which is all about doing good in the world, um, working with those ventures to help basically refine their business strategy and their brand strategy to get them to push a little bit further. So to almost catalyze them into being as successful as they can possibly be, which obviously means, you know, return on investment for the venture clients. Um, and yeah, it's just a kind of big mix, big variety. And I think that keeps me really excited and really interested. And then the other 50% of the time, uh, Global Head of Strategy for Ridley Scott Creative Group, um, which was set up probably about 18 months, two years ago, which was to work across the um, Ridley Scott collection of different businesses. So from film and TV through to music and RSA, which is the commercial aspect as well. And that essentially is looking at the future of entertainment um, and also, you know, how can we build entertainment experiences based on the heritage that Ridley Scott has to build towards the modern day to potentially look at how we do that for brands as well as obviously how we market the properties that are coming out of Ridley Scott as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a steep learning curve. I've never worked in entertainment and TV before. So that's why I was so interested in doing it and why I put my hand up. Um, because it's a new way to stretch. How much work do they have going on with all with with the Netflix and Hulu in terms of what their shows and productions? I mean, they must. I would think they're super busy, aren't they? Ridley Scott. Uh, yeah. We were, and then obviously the world stopped. Yeah, sure. yeah. uh, so that's that's changed things quite dramatically because, as you can imagine, the majority okay, of our yeah. are people based yeah. uh, actors and physical locations, and all of that's now had to shut down. Yeah, but I mean, it, just in the last uh, three to five years of the growth of streaming, I would mm. have, they would had 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 amazing opportunities. Absolutely, uh, and I think you know he's been involved. Um, well, the company's been involved in a lot of production. So, Man in the High Castle for Amazon um, yeah. is you know from the Ridley Scott Group. Uh, we had quite a few pilots going before, obviously, everything came to a screeching halt um, for the likes of um, TNT for Netflix. And uh, there's always lots and lots of conversations. And then also QB as well, um, which is a new streaming platform that is due to launch in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So lots of exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're obviously having to rethink um, what entertainment means when you don't have any people or any production teams. So what would you say, you know, you don't really have um, classic, uh, oh, you did work at Drogo though, didn't you? I did. I worked at Droga. I worked at Naked. I worked at Universal McCann, Glue, Isobar. So I've worked at lots of traditional, you know, big creative agencies, media agencies, comms agencies, yeah. that kind of stuff as well. And I think that just gave me a really good grounding in brand strategy and advertising. But I felt like that was only one piece of the puzzle, which is why I forced myself to kind of press the eject button and see where else I could potentially take my skill set to expand it out a little bit more. So when you when you when when you see working with clients, what what do you think the expectation is? Is it quite a lot of hands-on work in terms of workshopping? Is it um, going away and writing reports and coming back with points of view? What what's the type of? Because I I've got it's I I think a lot of strategists are interested in what is the world outside of the ad agency, and when, if I can escape um, this tightly confined box of writing creative briefs for TV commercials or yeah 
creative briefs for digital campaigns, what is the world like beyond that, um, that space? I mean, I think I've said it um, a few times in different places, but I think you become a bit of a Swiss army knife. And once you've got the basis of strategy, which the majority of people do within advertising agencies, it becomes how you then apply it to different challenges. And the basis of strategy is problem solving and problem definition. And so you just find different ways to do that depending on the scenario. So you might decide that in order to help a group of clients figure out how to put their commercial plans together, that that needs to be done in a workshop environment. You might decide that in order to help figure out the best positioning for new products or potentially how to enter a new category, you need to go away and do a little bit of thinking and then come back and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the CMO. So I think a lot of it is understanding that the minute you get out of agencies, all of that formulaic process goes out the window. Um, and it is up to you to decide what tools in your arsenal you want to pull out um, and what kind of interactions are the best. And it changes project by project, person by person, business by business. And the idea is that you should have learned, hopefully, a decent amount when it comes to processes, frameworks, uh, ways of working so that you can pick and choose and mash stuff together in a way that works for that client in that moment. Yeah. That's a very good answer. Um, where does, what does research look like if it looks like anything at all? And what about data in terms of this world? Is, have, you got, have you got clients who, are, are they prepared to be hypothetical or are they determined, are they, do they base decisions on data? Do they need consumer insights? Do they need to know what people think? What are you finding as you do your work in terms of the, the, the role and the importance or non-importance of research? I think it depends on the project that you're doing. So for example, if you're talking about new product development, then consumer feedback and research is much more critical because you need to get feedback on receptivity to that product, on whether or not it has any value, whether it kind of meets any needs. Um, you know, are you releasing just another load of crap into a marketplace that is already saturated? So in that instance, I think feedback is, is definitely valuable. When it comes to the brand stuff, I am not a fan of research when it comes to, you know, sort of positioning and putting out a point of view so not to say that i discard research completely i think it's definitely important to look at cultural trends and how things are shifting what current need states are out there but it's almost a broader brush but with more of a focus on the brand specifically and what they want to bring and what their personality should be and i think sometimes when you put in too much consumer research into a bigger brand job um, you can sometimes get less ambitious a bit more rational uh, you can get a little bit lost in the weeds. So I think there is a time and place for research where it's valuable. And there's another way you've just got to go with your gut um, and run at it and sort of see what works and what doesn't. Um, building kind of a little tangentially from there, um, how, because when you're working on the brand stuff, a lot of it's to do with, and positioning stuff, it's a lot to do with the future. And people are tremendously poor at imagining Yes. Do you have any like hacks to get people to think creatively about what that future could be? Um, Cause I'll give you, I'll give you one. 
Yeah, uh, example. Um, uh, Bree told me this. She works for uh, SYP, Estonia Amashita. She said, mm -hmm. um, when you talk to the CEO and they uh, come out with these uh, really uh, terrible, like, generic statements about what they want their brand to be and it's about you know we want to be human and we want to yeah we want to embrace uh diversity and uh you know she says like okay well here's the situation fast forward 24 months and you're at a company holiday party with every employee and you've got to make a speech and you've got to reflect back on the past 18 months and what they've achieved yeah. And you have to make a make a, an emotional uh, pull to the heartstrings of your employees. What would you say? Mm. I thought it was great. A good. Yeah, that's really nice. I mean, the one that I tend to use is um, sometimes I use it in a workshop. Sometimes I email it to them and ask them to fill it in. And it's just a one pager, and it's got a couple of different questions on it. And the first question is, um, what do we want to be known for in in twenty years' time? So, what kind of cultural legacy? do we want to have left on the world in 20 years time? And that's a big question. Mm -hmm. So I asked them to jump to that first and they're always scratching their heads going, oh, I don't know. Um, but that's a tough one. So I, I get them started with that. And then underneath that, I say, you know, what products, services, responsibilities, resources do you have in order to deliver on that cultural legacy right now? So imagine yourself in 20 years time, what do you do as a business? And then the last question is give me in chronological order over uh, a 20 year period in sort of, you know, a couple of year increments, how did you get there from where you are now mm -hmm. to where you want to go in 20 years time? Give me the chronology of the story, obviously make it up, um, but tell me how did you start? And then where, where were you in five years? Where were you in 10 years? And then how did you catapult yourself forward to where you are now? Mm -hmm. And it's a tough exercise, but I think it really gets people's brains whizzing above and beyond you know where do we want to be in 18 months because i think a lot of marketers uh quite rightly are panicking about um sales they're panicking about budgets they're panicking about their relevance within the business and how they can keep up uh, their own momentum and keep their own jobs and so there's a huge tendency which has definitely grown in the last decade or so to think short term you know you look at the majority of cmo tenures at the moment they're getting shorter and shorter and shorter and so trying to get them to think about the future in a way that's more tangible and not fluffy and wanky and starting to talk about, you know, we want to be an authentic brand in the hearts of people and all that bollocks. Um, you have to get them to sit down and really think about it. And it's a homework assignment and it's their job. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's your job to nudge them and your job to help them dream and to imagine, but they've got to put some effort into it. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna, I forgot what I was gonna, what was, <laughs> what was gonna ask. It was gonna be a great question. Damn it. Is it, what was it going to be? Um, oh, yes, I remember. Uh, you reminded me just then. Um, purpose. Yes. Is it coming up more and more? Is it? Where do you <laughs> I think it depends on what your view of purpose is. So I think that um, people like to people like to sort of talk about something as being dead. So, you know, the amount of articles I've seen of, you know, brand purpose is dead, move on. Regardless of what you call it, whether you call it a mission, whether you call it a purpose, whether you call it a direction, whether you call it values, whatever, it doesn't really matter. There still needs to be some sort of North Star that drives a business above and beyond making revenue or making money. 
um, that allows you to build, you know, ancillary meaning and ancillary, um, sort of, I don't know, just kind of more to a brand than it just sells trainers. Because, you know, that the whole purpose of a brand, um, as we all know, is to build something intangible over and above the tangibles. It's to get people to align themselves personally um, with something that they believe in from that particular brand and, and what it offers. And so I think if you don't want to call it purpose, you can call it something else. But I still think that that North Star and that navigation is, is critical. I mean, one, one thing I've noticed is, is it, it, I think what, what, the, what the detractors against brand purpose are saying is sort of the Mark Ritsons of this world uh, are sort of saying they sort of, they, they become highfalutin and they become very gener generic. Yes. Um, very you know, every food company wants to um, feed the world, you know, and, and, and so how do you, how do you find, because we talked about short term, we talked about purpose, but there is this sort of um, push to, being all things to all people a little bit, you know, and although we've got all this narrow cast targeting micro influences at the same time, we've still got these purposes that seem to be like blending into each other. Um, and um, we have a tough time trying to really finesse and nuance um, exactly who it is um, we want brands to be. I think that there is a, sorry, I'm going to turn my Slack off. Um, I think there's a balance in terms of where you can go with um, purpose that means that you don't end up in this kind of lofty, wanky, generic space, which I think is the temptation. Um, and you just got to bring it down a level and make it uniquely credible to that business. So not every food company has to save the world. Yeah. Um, you know, not every sports company has to get everybody moving. Um, you know, I think one of the best ones I've, that I've kind of ever seen is probably more likely to be an Airbnb because that felt unique to Airbnb. And I think that, you know, Belong Anywhere does initially sound a bit wanky, but what's been amazing about them is that they have built their business and all of the different pieces of their business using that as a navigation point and making sure that, you know, they're building connections between people all of their CSR stuff that goes out is about humanizing every single individual. And I think that if you have that strength of navigation that feels unique to your business, it can act as such a valuable springboard um, for every level of decision making, not just marketing and communications. And that's what you're looking for. Yeah, uh, I mean, again, I it goes back to being the, the simplicity, the clarity and the ownability, ownability of it. Yeah, uh, and it's hard. I mean, it's, there's a reason why um, it's, it's a d tough thing to get into. And it's a reason why a lot of brands get it wrong. Uh, it's not an easy process to go through. It's definitely not something that can be solved in a two hour workshop. Uh, it takes a hell of a lot of finessing. It takes a hell of a lot of, you know, immersing yourself in a client business and talking to people and also then matching that against the current climate and what the sort of consumer needs are as well. And then also just looking at it with a realistic lens and go, you know, guys, can we really pull this off? And if we can't put it off, we shouldn't be moving in that direction. Well, and then I think it goes back to that point of like, um, what you mean is, can you make it actionable? Is yeah. it true to who we are? And actually, can we do things that actually live up to that? And, and are, we, are we brave enough to get behind this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think I think that's another that's another criticism of the purposes, which is, you know, generic and lofty and no follow through. Yes. 
Yeah. Okay, let's switch. Uh, let's switch to the topic of the moment: um, surviving the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, a, it's an interesting time. I've been having lots and lots of fear. I've been I've been back to back over the last week, um, talking to brands that I work with, talking to um, celebrities that I work with, and trying to navigate this new normal, which is crazy it's just it's like trying to balance yourself on a bouncing beach ball everything's changing at a rate of knots um i feel like we're all in whiplash territory because it's happened so fast and we need to try and figure out what this is going to mean and i don't think anybody knows the answer on that just yet what sort of um feedback are you getting from from clients is there a, is it all different or is there sort of a generic a general response that is sort of one of uh, panic um I think one of the things that I've been counseling against, and I've heard it from a lot of brands, is they're all rallying going, shit, you know, what message should we put out? What should we say? Um, you know, let's communicate to consumers that we support them and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think the brutal feedback that I'm giving at the moment, which is hopefully going to be heeded by the majority of them, is unless you're making a concrete, tangible effort to help um, at the moment. So whether you are repurposing your manufacturing and your factories to be able to create masks or ventilators or hand sanitizer whether you are providing a valuable service for a brand new set of consumer needs that we ne we didn't even have a month ago such as you know existential survival boredom cabin fever emotional connection um you don't need to say anything and i think that that is a critical thing and i think as I said, we're moving at warp speed. People globally are going through what I can only describe as a mass emotional trauma. I don't think that we have a huge amount of headspace um, in our minds at the moment, despite all of the additional time that we might have on our hands. I think that we are becoming, and no, no fault of our own at all, a little bit scatty, only because we are in, we're taking in so much from this news cycle. Everything's changing every five minutes. Our lives have changed unequivocally in terms of our financial situation, our familial situations, our living situations, our freedom's been curtailed. That's a lot. And to add, you know, brand messages in there at this point in time doesn't feel timely, doesn't feel necessary. Um, and I think that brands, just like people right now, need to take a beat and digest and let a tiny bit of the dust settle before we try and figure out how we move forward on this. And as I said, unless you've got something really tangible that's contributing in a meaningful way, you don't need to add your voice to the cacophony of stuff that's already out there. Couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, it's almost insulting. It's almost like clueless. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so if you try and kind of as, as you are asked to do by your clients, probably um, lay out a sort of trajectory yeah. of what this is going to look like. We had our unemployment numbers just came out today. There's yeah. three, we went from very few to three million. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be fast. Yeah. And so you've got clients who don't know if they have jobs as well, I wonder. Exactly. And this is what I mean about emotional trauma. I think that it's an emotional trauma for people who we would previously name consumers. 
it's an emotional trauma for the markets. It's an emotional trauma for our clients themselves. And we should not be, unless as I said, we're contributing, we should not be in any massive rush to produce anything, to say anything, to come up with some sort of solution, which is potentially going to be, as you said, either kind of offensive or insulting or completely irrelevant and to spend time doing that. So unless you're providing a proper service in any way, I just don't think that there's any urgency around it at this point in time. We have no idea where we're going to be in a week or where we're going to be in a month. This is unlike anything any of us have ever experienced before. And I think that we are not going to be going back to normal. I think what we're going through now is a kind of once in a generation fundamental shift in every facet of our lives. And for anyone to predict that right now feels idiotic and arrogant, to be honest. Um, yes, I, let me let me agree on what you just said, but then suggest something additional. Um, I was on a call the other day and there was a guy who was a consultant and he said, this is a wake up call for, for example, a client of mine that is a luxury menswear retailer that only mm -hmm. has stores, had not done DCC, has nothing. And now they're scrambling to build a team right now to do this thing as fast as they can. Yeah. And, and, and I think we're seeing across categories where everyone talked about a digital revolution and everyone talked about digital transformation. And there were people, I mean, you only had to look at the McKinsey reports or the Deloitte reports and they all said the same thing. Only 25% of companies are fully embraced digital transformation. And now we've really seen it. You know, you've got restaurants who can't do delivery because they don't have the uh, digital infrastructure. Uh, so it seems to me um, there's, two, there's two parts to the picture. One is shut up if you're not um, doing anything meaningful um and two um work out how to transform your business to make sales make revenue um through digital in this new environment so for example the movie studios mm. there are no movie theaters open yes. uh, uh bonds going back and is going to be pushed out to 2021 well why don't they charge one dollar and have a billion viewers which would break yeah. the box office record, you know. I think those things are definitely in the pipeline um, in terms of how the movie studios are pivoting. For example, you know, they've taken Emma, the film, straight from Amazon early. Frozen 2 has been released a month early on Disney+. Plus. So I think those things are happening. I also think that despite the fact that we are shifting to a, a new normal, it's going to take a little bit of time for some people to get behind that. And I also think that these films are very expensive and box office, um, in terms of physical box office and theaters make a shit ton of money um, and can't be underestimated. So I think that the digital transformation on that will come faster than we'd ever expected it, but I still think there's gonna be people digging their heels in um, mm -hmm. on potential loss of earnings, especially having to move, maybe move into new platforms and physical theaters kind of thinking, yeah, great, you can transfer the money from a studio uh, through to a streaming platform, but then you're potentially damaging relationships if we do go back to any kind of new normal in terms of movie studios and theatres. So there's a lot to consider and that they, those topics are quite complex. But I think that the rate of, um, the rate of moving from a, a brief into an execution from a digital transformation perspective 
prior to all of this happening, it could have taken 12 months, 24 months longer, potentially. And now, obviously, as you said, because there's some urgency for businesses to keep their heads above water and be able to actually build out these different pieces of infrastructure to be able to keep making money, that's speeding up massively. I mean, one of the examples that I saw the other day was the NHS um, in England, so the National Health Service. And obviously, they are fantastic in every possible way, but they are you know, known to be, prior to now, bureaucratic, slow and difficult to work with. And they put a brief out um, to basically a bunch of telemedicine providers um, and asked for services to come in to be implemented almost in the next seven days to be mm. able to deal with patients who are non-urgent. So allowing GPs to do more virtual uh, mm. consultations and prior a process like that, a, t- a kind of tender like that would have taken 48 months and they asked for responses in 48 hours. Mm. That's, that's so right. Speed of change. It's almost all of the rules that we've previously had in place are being unpicked and proven to be false. You know, one of which is you're less productive when you're working from home. I think everyone can hopefully agree that one's swept away now. You know, another one is, you know, that classic awful uh, lazy insight, which is, you know, we're more connected than ever, but we're less connected than ever, that kind of thing. Obviously that's now been proven to be utterly false. And then you've got timelines on technology. So I think a lot of things are being proven that we can we can do hard things, we can make it faster. And I don't think that's going to be readily forgotten. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is we're, and I think you said, a histori- I think your phrase was sort of once in a generation or a historic moment type of thing. Um, yeah, we're all going through it together. Yes. From the CEO to the lowest ranked employee. And I think that makes it very interesting. I also think that makes... You know, I, and I was talking to somebody the other day where I think um, in a way there's never been a better time to be an insight person because, um, the, you know, you might be selling beer and, and you've been doing it for 20 years or 10 years and you know everything that someone's going to say in a focus group and you don't want to do another one and you're bored and you're cynical and you're skeptical, but you don't quite know what's going on right now. Yeah, it, it's a massive learning curve. And you could use uh, the help of some bright people who can help you. Um, so I, th- I think that's a real positive. Um, Absolutely. So what what, what do you can in terms of like just playing the scenario game? You said the world isn't going to be the same after mm. this. Yeah. And what? Because I think we're going to go through this sort of. I mean, clearly, when everyone's released from the prison. <laughs> yeah. Tend to be sort of like, a, like hugging of complete strangers in the street, and yeah, yeah maybe like those photos of the kind of, the end, know, end of the war. Yeah, exactly. We're going to recreate it. Yeah. So then you know you'll have like festivals, three million people festivals selling out in like minutes. I don't well. know if that's the case. I wonder, and I again, as I said, predicting stuff I think is idiotic yeah. and but you know I'll have a go um I I wonder if gigantic gatherings of people is going to come back in the next couple of years and the reason I say that and there's two ways of looking at it the first could be of course they're going to come back because people are so desperate to be with one another having Mm. been you know basically locked up and put in prison that they're going to embrace it Mm. the other thing is that there might be a bit of a hangover about this whole idea of big gatherings and there might be a bit of fear around that as well. And so what we might see is actually, but obviously we still gather and we still have a huge sense of community, arguably more so than we ever did before. 
um, which we needed in the polarized society we were getting into. But I'm not sure if gigantic gatherings might be something that people are adverse to, at least for a period of time. Yeah, I think so I'd be interested to see how that works. I think, you know, the most obvious one that everyone's banging on about is uh, working from home and flexibility. So I think there'll be some flexibility with that. I do wonder on uh, the job front. So prior to all of this happening, it was very sexy to start your own business and to be self-employed and the gig economy and all of that kind of stuff. And I think that people were embracing it to a certain extent, even though we had issues with, you know, the gig economy and Uber and all of those things as well. But I wonder now if, and I might be wrong, um, if there will be a rush back to more stable jobs and full-time work because of this scary factor of not having a cushion and not having a safety net, even though people are being laid off from full-time jobs, I think there might be more of a perception of being on firmer ground and being a bit safer if you've got a quote unquote proper job as opposed to being self-employed. And I think, you know, for a certain subset of people, I can see that happening. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And I wonder if actually there's any form of hybrid hybridization. Yeah. Um, you know, yes, you're a great strategist. We haven't got work for you right now, but set up on your own and we'll guarantee you a set number of hours. Yeah. So, I think that's, some more i think it's stability it's more like a hybrid you know you can you, you know yeah yes there isn't really a full-time go off on your own but we're not going to leave you know we're not going to leave you in the lurch um yes. that type of thing so i think those those hybrid type arrangements might uh be actually quite attractive because you do have that stability and freedom sort of combined and the in more and i think the more enlightened employers will think about that um i also <laughs> i also think when you comes to the gig economy um uh, you know, it, it's sort of cruelly exposed right now. Um, you know, the, the Lyfts and the Ubers are at the front line of this and they're, you know, they're not protected. They're not, mm. they've got one choice, drive when you're sick to get paid or starve. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's happening on a, on a myriad of different fronts where, you know, previously, I'm not sure if you're fully aware of the NHS in the UK, but there's been this debacle of how dare the doctors on the NHS ask for a pay rise, the greedy bastards. And now these are the people saving our lives. So I think there's, and also, you know, supermarket workers were looked down on as being lesser. Um, you know, they worked in a supermarket or Uber and Lyft drivers were seen as, you know, unable to get, again, quote unquote, proper jobs. But actually we're looking at it now and these are the people that are keeping us all afloat. Yep. So I think there's going to be a new, you know, reverence and appreciation, I hope. For those people um, and potentially from a gig work perspective with the likes of uber and lyft and the supermarkets and amazon deliveries i'm really hoping that they start to think about how they treat these people more humanely and actually give them the benefits that they deserve to a certain extent so i think i hope i'm hoping there's going to be changes on that front and then i think from a business perspective um i think that again the sexiness factor of startups and all of these crazy valuations. I mean, that was starting to drop a little bit when it came to the likes of, you know, WeWork, when it came to Peloton, um, and obviously Airbnb were about to float and people were kind of nervous about what was gonna happen on that front. I think what's been shown in the, even the last week is that these startups and the VCs have been throwing far too much cash at them and overvaluing hugely um, what they're worth and also what they're able to withstand. And, you know, quite rightly, the VCs are now kind of going, well, if you don't cut your costs in the next you know, week, we're going to have to start thinking about pulling money out. 
And so left, right and centre, you're seeing startups either crashing and burning or having to shed as many employees as they possibly can. And I think we're going to actually have much more of a rational mindset around how we view these companies, taking them off these you know, perceptions of being on the pedestal and looking at actually, you know, looking under the covers and going, how much profitability have you actually got? Not the idea of the business and what, you know, how beautiful it is or aesthetically pleasing it is or how great it looks on Instagram, but actually how is this business model working? And I think that's definitely going to be a mind shift. Yeah, because they, they haven't had to face up, face up to those realities until now. Yeah, they've been shielded because of the, the, the cushions of all of their cash balances. Well, not, not, not everyone, but um, quite a few of them. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think I, th I think it's a quite a it, it, it's it's quite a pessimistic scenario if you think about it. I mean, it is talking about a lot of people losing losing their jobs, mm. um, and you know, there's a lot comes with that. You know, the it's really you know it's interesting the the climate change debate. If you look at Extinction Rebellion, Extinction Rebellion says, you know, ground the economy to zero. Yeah. And you know. And, 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 you know, we're grinding our economy to zero and it doesn't work. Yeah. And so what is the, you, you can't really have, we can't go back to normal. No. Because we'll kill the planet. Mm. We can't do the Extinction Rebellion because we'll kill the economy. Yeah. So we have to find, there has to be some enlightened leadership. Yes. Political business leadership that takes you to this midpoint. Yeah. Um, and yeah. maybe, and maybe one, of the, one of the big things that will happen is people will just have to accept downsizing. Yeah. And living more within their means. Smaller, smaller house, smaller yeah. car, travel less, yeah. spend less, that will you know, have significant impacts on those more indulgent businesses. I agree. And I think... Um, I think we were already aware of just how scary the level of inequality has gotten to in the Western world. And I think that a pandemic like this just shines a brightly colored spotlight on how awful it is. Because when it comes to, you know, your health and safety, you were mentioning Uber drivers, the choice is drive or starve and expose your health for that. And that's a horrific choice to have to make. And then, you know, you've got some slightly tone deaf people talking about the fact that a pandemic is a great equalizer when it's anything but because social isolation for the rich is fundamentally different from social isolation of a family of six in a two bed flat in Brooklyn. Um, and then, you know, you've also got the impact on gender politics. You've also got the impact on people who can't get tested unless they're a celebrity or an influencer or they've got 10 grand sitting in the bank. So I think that the, the appetite to continue this level of equality is going to be fundamentally shifted, even though it's getting to that stage. All of it, all this has done is fast track the fact that it is cruel and unfair, and we need to do something more about it. Especially, I think in the US, it's shone a light on the fact that health uh, cover for all is fundamental as a human need. And then also, I think it's interesting, especially in the UK over here as well, as they're fast tracking financial bailouts for individuals. Um, so, you know, the idea of universal basic income might come out of this and might be a bit more palatable um, in some places. So, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of change, um, but who knows where we're going to be. Yeah, as you said. Um, yeah. I'm not sure more, more we kind of covered a lot. 
there's no there's sort of like a, a perfect conclusion to the end a perfect full stop um because i'm not sure where you go from here um i, I don't know i don't know what the future circles. yeah i think it's a lot of it is just navigating over the next couple of months um and doing so in a way that requires a huge amount of empathy um yeah. and i think the other thing that i've that i've noticed just just to add one more thing is i am hating all of these people on twitter and on linkedin saying be productive with your self-isolation time write a novel reassess your business plan think about your personal brand um you know, do all don't of these waste this time don't waste this valuable opportunity and i am in the complete opposite camp um because i think you know as strategists and not just strategists but generally in the creative industry we are hopefully most of us empaths to a certain degree which is the what thing that makes us slightly more creative or more insightful and i think that again we need to understand that we are also a part of this gigantic emotional trauma and to put that pressure on ourselves to use this time to be productive is ridiculous and i think that we need to look after ourselves and we need to not think that we're wasting the time um, and one of the things that I think potentially would be wonderful to come out of this is a complete shift in how we see the success and the value that we bring. Because I think that we've been so obsessed with optimizing our time and productivity and tracking and measurable outputs in the Pomodoro method and, you know, making sure that we're churning out stuff on a prolific basis. Um, but actually, we haven't given ourselves time to sit and to be bored and to be idle and all of that is proven to be hugely fertile ground for creativity if we're actually allowing ourselves just to sit so i think we need to reframe this idea of idleness as a bad thing because idleness and laziness are two completely separate things and not put so much pressure on ourselves and i'm actually enjoying in between my myriad of you know emergency phone calls just sitting yeah and not doing anything and i think that is a deliberate thing that we should all try and embrace as opposed to making ourselves feel even worse by going, God, why haven't I written, you know, the next great article or the novel of my life? <laughs> yeah, like somebody told you to do, learn to play the guitar. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I, yeah, and it's back to that empathy, anxiety, you know, as you said at the very, very beginning of the conversation, it's like people have been thrown so many things simultaneously Mm. Yeah, all, all that you know I, it's an anxiety trauma yeah um because if you're told you're getting sick your parents are getting sick yeah or you're going to be spreading this thing that you don't know you have oh and by the way you've also lost your job you don't know where your mortgage payment's going to come from you can't get a food delivery for the next four weeks and the idea of going out on the street to go to a supermarket fills you with existential dread it's like well, I mean, that's a lot to process, right? So yeah. to tell me that I need to write a novel or reassess my business plan on top of all of that, you know, I'm going to tell you where to shove it, to be honest. And I'm, I think- Come to the Park Slope Co-op. Yeah. Which is the, uh, which is the uh, number one 17,000 members. It's the largest grocery cooperative in the world. And it's one block from where I live and I'm a member. And if you are fortunate enough to be a member, not only do you get the most amazing, just in time delivered fresh produce, the price you pay is you have to wait in line right now for about two and a half hours. 
Wow. Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah, you don't want to be on the street for two and a half hours right now. Well, it's a good know. time to be idle, listen to a podcast. Well, yeah, that as well. But you also don't want to be outside in Armageddon. But no, I, I agree on the idleness thing. I think we've just got to stop with the productivity chat and the optimization of our self-isolation time because we are not all going to come out of this. As I said, having written books or with the perfect beach body, um, you know, or having mastered the art of pranayaga yoga. I mean, it's just, it's too much. And I think we need to give ourselves a break um, and take a beat and sit and learn to sit with boredom and learn to sit with uncertainty. And I think if we do that, we're going to come out of this more empathetic and more creative um, and more able to navigate the uncertainty that we're undoubtedly going to continue to find ourselves in. What, what a brilliant way to end it. I cannot think <laughs> of a, I can't, that is perfect. That is a very, very succinct ending. Thank you so much. Thank you for Thank your you time. Much. Thank yeah, you for you your, your thoughtful, uh, insightful, empathetic perspective and uh, the best of luck um, with the forthcoming. That's <laughs> with your idleness, yes. your, 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 your um, kind of uh, fulcrum of from idleness to helping people uh, cope with anxiety and emotional trauma. Um, good luck and thank, thank you for your time. You too, thank you. See you soon. Okay, bye. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.